All right. Well, it is, uh, it, it's been a busy week. And so I, I, will, I will forgive you if you don't remember everything that we talked about two weeks ago. We had, uh, we had a lot of great spiritual content from Brother Michaels when we were talking about the heart. And before that, we were talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. So it's been a little bit, so I, I went ahead and put a recap uh, up here on the screen. But just think about, if you can, think back to chapters 10 and 11 because they form one complete thought. So chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 are all very, very closely connected. 10, 11, and 12, uh, maybe even a little bit more so. Uh, He's dealing with the exact same thing. And so think back to what we were talking about. If you remember, Paul felt it necessary to directly address the Corinthians, and especially these individuals that he came right out and said were false apostles. Now, if you recall, we made the point that this was not out of pride. This was not Paul defending himself to them because he he felt that people had been talking badly about him and he wanted to uphold his reputation. This was done out of a desire that they remain pure. If you go back to chapter 11, I think I told you, I think one of the key verses in this section, chapter 11 and there in verse 3, he said, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So he was speaking to them as a father to a child and letting them know that, you know, this isn't, this isn't me against them. This is you against sin. And I'm coming to you right now because I want to make sure that you remain pure, that you remain chaste, that you remain right in Christ. As he went on throughout chapter 11, he, he hit on this idea that he had not misused his authority in any way. He answered several direct charges that had been brought against him by these false apostles. They had claimed that, you know, maybe Paul didn't love them. Maybe Paul had just been using them. You know, maybe Paul wasn't even all that great. And they brought out the fact, you know, he he didn't even take payment from you while he was here. And Paul just turned that on his head. He said, if you go back and you look with an objective eye at my time with you and everything that I did, you will see that I did everything for your edification. I do have authority. I have authority as an apostle from God, and I only used that authority for your edification, for your benefit. And he used that point. He said, yes, I did forego payment. I didn't take anything from you. And that's actually a mark of my love for you. He went on and we spent just a couple of moments, if you remember those latter verses of chapter 11, when he goes through all the trials, all the suffering that he has been through. And it should be immediately clear that there is just no comparison between what Paul has sacrificed for the gospel and what these individuals that are trying to sway the Corinthians have been through. They are sitting there boasting of themselves, boasting of all the things that they have done, boasting about how great they are. And Paul, again turns that on its head. He says, I'm not going to boast about that. I'm going to tell you all the things that I've suffered. I'm going to tell you about all the times that I have been made weak. Because when I am made weak, that is when God is glorified. And that point ties in very nicely with what we're going to be talking about today in chapter 12. And and, and it's a shift in thinking. It's a shift in thinking because that does not fit with the narrative of our world today either. Not, not much has changed since the first century. There are still many individuals that would put out their credentials, and in those credentials, they would list all the things that they have done, that they are responsible for. They would like to talk about the impact that they have made, things that they have said, books that they have written. 
Paul says, here are my credentials. Let me tell you all the times that I was beaten. (laughs) Essentially, let me tell you all the times that I failed by the world standard. If you go in to talk to a group of people and then they take you outside and they stone you, you you didn't succeed. (laughs) You did not convert these individuals. But Paul says, when those things happened, when I was beaten, when I was stoned, when I was cast out, in the end of chapter 11, he actually mentions maybe one of the first instances of this persecution happening to him. When he went to Damascus and people wanted to kill him to the point that he had to be let down out of the city, he said, that's when God was glorified. Because when I am weak, God is the one who supplies the strength. God is the one who has rescued me through all these cases. God is the one who has strengthened me and God can now be glorified. So that's going to lead into what we're talking about in, in chapter 12 today. So let's go ahead and go to chapter 12 and start there with the first couple of verses. Uh, Again, this is just one, this is one continuous thought. Chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, it is doubtless not profitable. That's the uh, the New King James Version. Uh, Some things say it's nevertheless. Um, but, But the idea here is that, as he has already said, Paul does not relish in this role of of boasting. You know, there's an element of sarcasm here when he calls it boasting. Because he's not talking the same way these other individuals are talking. He said, It's doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Go down to verse 4, because he repeats himself in verse 3. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast... Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. I will speak the truth. So Paul here is talking about something. And if you go down to verse 7, I think verse 7 kind of gives us a little bit of context. Because it does seem to indicate that this man was Paul. Uh, Verse 7 says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. Now that, that word, and lest, kind of connects it. And so it does seem like Paul is probably talking about himself here. I think the applications are the same. So whether he was actually talking about somebody that he knew or whether he was talking about himself, the point still remains the same, that he is saying, I am not going to boast about personal accomplishments. Again, you look at just the distinction between maybe what these false apostles were saying and what Paul is now saying. You know, they are boasting of what they do and of what they say, And now look at Paul. Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you about something that either he himself or this individual that he knew, I had no control over. No control over. No skill. No prowess. No ability. I'm going to tell you about something wonderful that happened to me or to this individual. And then, you know, maybe maybe frustratingly so, how, how vague is it? All we're told here, all Paul relates to them is that this individual was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, and you may think about uh, these, these, these tiers, not that there's multiple heavens necessarily, but you know we have the heavens that we can see when we look up into the sky. And then, of course, we know beyond what we can see, there's, there's space, there's outer space. And then you can imagine this third level of heaven, the spiritual realm where God dwells. So he's talking about this individual, either he or, or, or this other man, who was caught up to this third heaven, And he heard inexpressible words that he's not even going to tell them about. So so again, in in my mind, I just keep coming back to this comparison 
between what these false apostles were saying. And I can just imagine that they are going on and on and on about all the wonderful things that they say and that they do. And here you have Paul, in some ways, frustratingly vague about this wonderful, indescribable experience. And Paul says, that's, that's what I'm going to boast about. And, and again, as I read this, I, I believe that this, this was Paul. Um, you know, in, in my mind, this actually kind of fits in with the context a little bit. You know, it, it says, uh, as he goes into verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure. So he seems to be writing some context and some rationale for his next thought when he discusses the thorn in the flesh. And also, I think it fits in with that idea of him comparing himself to these false apostles. You know, he's been providing these, uh, these comparing images back and forth. Uh, at least in my mind, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to then introduce somebody else. Um, while, while it can fit, um, I think it makes a little bit more sense if this is, if this is Paul. Uh, he mentions 14 years ago. So if you kind of think about a timeline... Um, if Paul was converted uh, sometime around, around 36 AD or so, um, and this is written, um, this is written a little bit later. So uh, you think about when would this have fit in? Uh, this would probably fit in, you know, during a time that we don't have a lot of information about. So 14 years ago, um, if you go to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, you know, Paul is, in some ways, he is describing, again, the marks of his apostleship. And in Galatians chapter 1, he tells us just a very, very little bit about a time that we don't know much about. Um, It it talks about uh, his conversion. And he says in verse 17 that he did not go up to Jerusalem. But in verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Uh, Then in verse 21, after this time of going up to Jerusalem to see Peter and James, he mentions that he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So so we've we've got kind of a... Uh, a, a, a space of time in Paul's life that Acts does not really give us a lot of information about. So if this was Paul, it seems like this would have occurred during that time period. Um, and we just, don't, we just don't have a whole lot of information about it. But again, I, I think the main point here is that Paul is just creating another distinction. He is not talking about his own accomplishments. Rather, he is talking about things that have happened to him And again, God being glorified by those things, not of his own doing. Uh, And this connects into what we're going to see in in this next section where we talk about the thorn in the flesh. Uh, We're going to spend a little bit of time there. We're going to dig in on the thorn in the flesh, uh, so to speak, and and make some applications. Before we do that, any any comments or any thoughts? Well, let's just keep going then uh, because these these two things are connected in the text. So when you go into verse 7... He's just talked about this, uh, this occasion to boast. And this occasion to boast is an individual who was caught up to heaven and was able to be in the presence of God and hear these inexplicable things. But in verse 7, he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So let's stop right there and think about that. He further elaborates on this weakness and said he was given something to essentially keep his pride in check. So having had this experience, and again, whether this was Paul that he specifically discussed earlier, he's mentioning now that he has been the beneficiary of revelations. Something that, again, it's hard to even comprehend. 
you know, you think about if you go back and, and you read some of the prophets that did give us a little bit of detail about, uh, about their encounters with the glory of God, or even John in Revelation, as he describes in some detail these, these revelations and these visions that he has seen, it, it, it just, it, it fills you with awe. There, there's no other word that I can think of than, uh, than, than just, just humility and awe. And I would imagine that if you have been the recipient of this, it would be hard. It would be hard to kind of keep yourself in check when you have been given access to something that so few people have seen. But yet we have here him saying that this thorn in the flesh was given to him, a messenger of Satan, so that he would not exalt in this opportunity that he had with all these revelations. So the natural question is, uh, what is the thorn in the flesh? Um, well, the short answer is we don't know. And, and again, as I've mentioned earlier, the applications are the same regardless of what the thorn in the flesh was. But that's not fun to talk about. So, so let, let's, let, let's talk a little bit about what it could be. Um, if you do some reading, it seems like there's kind of two, two main things that are out there as explanations that are offered uh, for what this thorn in the flesh could be. Maybe the earliest explanation, if you go back to some of those early writings of, of Tertullian, was that this was some kind of a physical malady. And again, this just, this just runs the gamut. You know, you hear people talk about everything from seizures to, to speech issues to eye issues. One guy was talking about Paul suffering from migraine headaches. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's an unending list, but it's some fill-in-the-blank version of a physical malady. You know, this is looking at that wording, a thorn in the flesh, and it's obviously taking the word thorn metaphorically, but then it takes the word in the flesh literally. So, so if, you, if you would think that this would be some, some kind of physical thing that afflicted him, um, it, it, is this, it is this thing that was sent from Satan that was then there to, to somehow limit him, to somehow humble him. And if this was some form of a disability or some form of a physical issue, you can see how that would humble someone. You know, when your body does not perform the way you want it to, that is extremely humbling. To be physically fit and healthy and able one day, and then to have something hit you the next, and not to be able to do what you were doing just the day before. You know, not to be able to, to walk across the room because you feel so sick. Uh, not to be able to use a hand. You know, if, if, you, if you were used to using both hands, and all of a sudden now you couldn't use one of your hands. Imagine how humbling that would be to be limited. So you can see how if this was some sort of a physical ailment or a physical malady, that would, that would, certainly, that would certainly humble an individual. It would make somebody realize just how dependent they are on others. Uh, if you've known anybody that has a severe disability, you know, maybe a disability where they require use of a wheelchair, you know, just think about, think about the, the amount of help that they need just in getting around and doing some of those activities of daily life. Maybe things they were used to doing on their own just prior, but now they require assistance from others. And it is, it's extremely humbling. Another thing that might fit here, you see this in several writings, is that this is, this is taking the phrase, a thorn in the flesh, as, as, as all metaphorically. So, you know, this thorn in the flesh is not literally quite in Paul's flesh. But this may be referring to an adversary. Um, and and one, of the, one of the things that they use as maybe some, some evidence or some context for this interpretation is to go back and look at how this word was used prior in the Old Testament. 
Uh, similar context, both in Numbers and in Joshua. I'm, I'm going to go to Joshua. But if you go to Joshua chapter 23, Joshua chapter 23, and there in verse 13. And this is Joshua's farewell address. Uh, the passage in Numbers is, is very similar. This is Moses talking to the people. But both using very similar wording when giving them warnings about the surrounding nations. And remember, they are not to intermarry with these surrounding nations. They are to remain separate. They are to remain holy and not be pulled down by the surrounding nations in their sin. But in Joshua chapter 23 and verse 13, it says, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And then it's, it's very similar language in Numbers 33 where it talks about thorns in your eyes. Uh, that phrase, I think it's also used in Hosea as well, talking about these surrounding nations being thorns in their side, thorns in their eyes, you know, thorns in the flesh. Of course, the way that's used in Numbers and Hosea and in Joshua is not talking about some kind of a physical malady or some kind of a disability that's going to come upon the children of Israel. But it's saying that if you disobey the Lord's commandments and you intermarry and you mix with these sinful nations, they are going to drag you down. They are going to be an adversary to you and they are going to constantly afflict you. And we know as we look at the history of the children of Israel, that was the case. These other nations dragged them down. These other nations were an adversary to them, not only through, through physical wars, but also through warring against them spiritually and pulling them and pulling them away into idolatry. And so that's, that's just given as a, a little bit of an example as to maybe why, instead of something physical, this might have been an adversary. Uh, you also look at the wording there where he says a messenger of Satan. Now, of course, a messenger of Satan could be something that, that afflicts you physically, but quite also be an individual, an individual who is working on Satan's behalf, trying to oppose the gospel and trying to oppose Paul's spread of the gospel. In thinking about this, I, I just thought of all the individuals that Paul mentions. You know, when you think about some of these folks that he talks about, uh, in Timothy, he talks about Alexander the coppersmith, an individual that had harmed him greatly. Uh, he also, in Timothy, talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus, individuals who had a destructive gospel. Uh, he talks about Demas, an individual that had once worked with him and now had forsaken him. Demetrius, I believe, was one of those individuals who was a worshiper of Diana, who stirred up the people at Ephesus. You think about as you go through the, uh, the, the missionary journeys, the Jews that would follow Paul from one city to the next, trying to persuade people against the gospel, trying to stop Paul, trying to even kill Paul. So those are just two different things for you to think about as you're trying to decide for yourself maybe what this thorn in the flesh could be. It certainly could have been something physical that would have humbled him. But I can also imagine that if this were an individual or individuals, these messengers of Satan, these adversaries, how humbling that would be. Cam, we've got a comment in the back with Tali. Um, how humbling that would be to be giving your life for the gospel every single day. But yet in every city that you go, every time you are trying to build up and edify and teach, you've got these individuals that have turned against you. They're trying to stop you. Tali? I was just going to say, I think it's interesting. It came from Satan, but it was to keep him from sinning and being too elated, which I think is very mm -hmm. interesting. 
And the other, you know, that you had talked about in Joshua was, came from the Lord mm-hmm. because of sin. You know, this didn't come because of sin. For, it kept him from sin, which is, yeah. I find very interesting. It would come from Satan to keep him from sinning. Yes. No, absolutely. And, and as we go into some of the applications of this, I, I think your comment is spot on. It, it is amazing how many times Satan, who, who, does, who does have influence over this world, who does have power, while that power is limited, he does have influence and power in this world. How many times has Satan intended something for evil that then God turns around and uses for his glory? And you're right, Tolly. You know, there is this, there is this thing here that Satan has wanted to buffet him. You look at that word buffet, um, not buffet, which is a good thing. Buffet, which can also be a bad thing, depending on how, how uh, you know, how frequent. But th- this idea of, of buffeting is, is, is be- literally being beaten. You think about that idea of just getting beaten over and over again, having something that was afflicting you, again, whether it was physical or whether it was individuals, just getting beaten down over and over and over again. Um, you know, Paul actually used that word when he was talking about how he tried to control and discipline himself. And it's a constant, it's a constant buffeting, beating over and over and over and over and over again. That's how he described this, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. But again, you're right, Tolly. It was something that was from Satan, as, as I can imagine, to hinder Paul's work in whatever way it was, to hinder Paul's work, to hinder the spread of the gospel. But yet, Cam, John's got a comment. Um, but yet, God then uses this for his glory. God uses this to keep Paul from sin. So it's just amazing how you have Satan on one hand trying to push someone to depression, despair, and and to ultimately give up the good work that he's doing. And God actually turns that on its head and uses it to keep Paul from sin and keep him doing the good work that he is. John? Paul had a similar situation writing to the Galatians, having to defend himself. In chapter 4 and verse 13, he talked about, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel. If you look at footnote for that bodily Ill- illness it says literally weakness of the flesh mm-hmm. and he goes on to say and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe but you received me as an angel so whatever this was a physical issue it apparently attended people to uh, kind of reject it it was a loathsome thing for some people but uh, so I don't know if that was this thorn in the flesh or not. There's mm-hmm. no way to know, but I suppose there's a possibility there. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and again, I think that just goes to show how when you have the right mindset, when you have the right mentality, and whatever, and, and individuals definitely brought up that, that situation in Galatians, whether that was a temporary thing that kept him in that area or whether this was an ongoing chronic thing. Um, but you, you see Paul using that, you know, like I said, whatever it was, he used it to preach the gospel. <laughs> Whatever that situation was, whether it was some kind of sickness that kept him in an area from moving on, he said, okay, this is an opportunity to preach. And what you see here is Paul using this, this thorn in the flesh as, as an opportunity to keep himself from sin. You know, and I thought, about, I thought about Job, just this idea of Satan intending something for evil, but God using it for his glory. And we don't have time to go back and read there, but you know, you know the situation with Job um, where Satan, had, Satan sees an individual that is faithful to God. He wants to pull him away. But yet at the end, where does Job end up? 
throughout everything, he ends up seeing God in a whole new light. He says, you know, now I, now I have seen you. And now Job comes to a better understanding and a better glorification of God while Satan intended something for evil. And I, I think that's, that's a lesson for us as well. Let's, let, let's also think uh, about, as you go on to those next couple of verses, um, he mentions in verse 8, whatever this was, this was not something that, that, that Paul did not want to go away. This was something that he, he definitely did not want to deal with. Verse 8, he said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's hard for me not to miss the parallel to our Savior in the garden. When you have have Jesus in the garden praying three times that this cup might pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And here you have Paul three times approaching the Lord, asking that this thorn in the flesh could be removed. But yet when the answer is given, there's complete acceptance. There's complete acceptance that it is God's will not my will. And then Paul isn't, isn't, uh, I think it's just interesting here, the wording, Paul isn't begrudgingly accepting this, as I feel uh, so often I, I'm in the position of, you know, when I'm dealing with something, it's like, okay, I know, this, I know this is God's will, so I'm just going just to go through it. No, Paul says, okay, if this is going to be your will, then I will gladly, I will gladly boast in my infirmities. Because he has, he has realized something even greater. That when he is weak, God is glorified. When he is weak, he is given strength and Christ is glorified. And that is something that is far better than any kind of personal accomplishment. It's far better than than being tough and saying, I don't need any help. Paul is actually glorying in getting help because he knows where that help is coming from. And that's a wonderful attitude for us. And, and And I just couldn't help but thinking about this bookend. When you go all the way back to the very beginning of 1 Corinthians... So 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 through 31. Uh, run back over there real quick. We won't read all of it. But uh, verse, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Again, this does not fit with the world's narrative. The world wants to hold up the strong and the mighty, individuals that don't need help from anyone else. And Paul says that's not how God works. God has chosen the things that the world looks at as foolish and weak. Dying on the cross is not strong according to the world. Again, that's failure. You you wanted to lead a revolution? You wound up on a cross. You did not succeed. Uh, the, The Jews thought they had won. Satan thought he had won. But God has chosen what the world views as foolish and weak, that is really strong, that is mighty, and that is victory. Humility, meekness, submission, things that the world views as foolish and weak, God views as strong and mighty. And I think there's just a, there's just a wonderful bookend here from the very beginning of, of his writing to the Corinthians, and now as he's closing out this second letter that, that we have, You just have him with those ideas. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame that which is mighty. And he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's just just a wonderful idea to really refute man's thinking and and just the the temptations there 
The temptation's there of pride. Um, any other thoughts on, on the, the thorn of the flesh? Yeah, John. I think a good example of the point Paul is making here is David and Goliath. Now let's suppose David had been a giant, big, strong guy, big, bigger, bigger than Goliath, and he defeated him. Then who would you attribute the victory to? It would be to David. Mm-hmm. But he was just, as all accounts, just a teenager and not a very big person at all. And before he entered into the, into the battle, he said, the battle belongs to the Lord. And so God showed his power in David defeating Goliath. And I think it's a similar thing here mm-hmm. with Paul. Yeah, that's a great point. What was, it, was it Gideon where he, where he asked him to reduce the size of the army? You know, if you, if you go there and, and you, know, you take down you know, 15,000 people with 12,000 people, well, you know, but if you, if you take down thousands with 300, there, there's no doubt who the glory belongs to. And I think that, that's an excellent point, John. And that's, and that's just something that, that I think it should be encouraging for us. When we deal with the trials and the tribulations and, and the obstacles that this world presents to us, what kind of attitude do we have? You know, how do we look at this the way that Paul does and say, well, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities. Verse 10, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When James talks about count it all joy, my brothers... When you fall into trial, how, how do you do that? How, how, do you, how do you count it all joy? How do you take pleasure in these things? It's not easy. But when we have this kind of mindset that Paul, that Paul has, what, what do he say in, in Philippians? I, I've learned in, in, all, in all things to be content. Philippians 4.11. Uh, I, I've learned in whatever situation I am, whether I'm, whether I am, whether I'm proud or whether I'm abased, you know, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full. That, 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 is, that, is a hard, that is a hard lesson to realize, but what a wonderful example for us that when we are going through these things, we realize there is a purpose, that God can be glorified even in our infirmities. And just, just think about it. maybe somebody who is struggling. When everything's fine, when everything's fine, it's, it's hard to be a good example in, in some ways. But when you're struggling, when you're really going through something, and you've got people that are, that, are, that are noticing you, that are watching you, that are trying to lift you up. And they see your attitude. You know, sometimes that's really when it shines. When you're going through something difficult and people see how you're holding up. That's really when we can glorify God through our attitude and our approach. So, so a, good lesson, a good lesson from Paul there. Any other thoughts before we move on to the next section? Well, this, this, uh, this, this next little section, verses 11 through 13, really kind of concludes what we've been talking about really since chapter, chapter kind of midway through 10 or chapter 11, this section of, of his boasting. You know, chapter 10 was really the introduction. And then chapter 11, he said, okay, just, just bear with me for a little bit. I'm going to quote unquote boast. This is kind of bringing that to an end. So verse 11 says, I've become a fool in boasting. You've compelled me. I ought to have been commended by you. He said that before. You guys should know. I shouldn't have to do this. I shouldn't have to come to you and tell you these things. Because remember, how, how long was Paul there in Corinth? Yeah, a year and a half at least. So he was there for 18 months. He didn't just have a cup of coffee with them. He was there. He lived with them. He worked with them. And so he says, I shouldn't have had to do this. I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you are inferior to other churches? 
except that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. And again, I, I read some sarcasm in that, that, last, that last note of forgiveness. He's saying, listen, okay, yeah, I mistreated you. I was there with you. I didn't take any money from you. I built you up. I, I labored with you daily. Yeah, forgive me, forgive me for that. <laughs> you know, if that's wrong, then go ahead and forgive me. Uh, and I, I think he, he's saying there, listen, in conclusion, guys, you know, you know the truth. These individuals are trying to sway you against me and ultimately against the gospel. And he said, if you step back and you look at their claims and you look at my claims, it's easy to see that when I was among you, I didn't do any of these things. I didn't take advantage of you. You know, my decisions not to take payment, they were for for your benefit. It's because I loved you. My decision to write, you know, a fairly stern letter to you in 1 Corinthians, that's because I loved you. My decision not to come to you when I had planned to come to you, that was because I loved you. And he said, listen, I demonstrated everything among you that you've seen with your own eyes to testify to my authority as an apostle. So that concludes this section where he's, uh, he, he's, writing, he's writing to them. So now we kind of go into the next one. This is the last section of chapter 12. Uh, this is verses 14 through 21. So he says, verse 14, now for the third time, I am ready to come to you. So how many times did Paul go to Corinth? That's kind of tough to figure out. Um, you know, if you, if you just read that on its face, now for the third time I'm ready to come to you. Chapter 13, verse 1, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. Okay? Sounds like he's been there twice. Um, definitely some challenges when you, when you kind of read through the bigger picture of did Paul, did Paul actually go a second time after his 18-month stay Um, Or is he saying, now I am ready to come to you because I changed my plans? So first of all, you know, if you read, if you read it this way, I think there's two ways of taking it. There was, some people call this the painful visit. Uh, If you go back to the very beginning, if you you may remember this from some weeks ago when David started the class, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks a little bit about this situation where it seems like he changed his plans. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 15 He says, and in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and to be helped by you on my way to Judea. But it seems like he doesn't do it. When you go down to verse, uh, let's see, verse 23, he says, moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Chapter two, verse one, I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. So you can kind of you can kind of read this you can read this two different ways. You can read this as there there was this visit that he's saying because if he's if he's saying he's coming to them a third time, he spent those eighteen months with him. He's left. He's had this report in First Corinthians, I believe the report from some of those among uh, Chloe's household. There are things not right with the church, so he sends the letter, and maybe now he has gone to them a second time to try to correct some of these things, and it didn't go well. And now in 1 Corinthians, he's telling them, that visit did not go well. I don't want to come to you again in sorrow. So that's why I held off my trip. And now at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, now I'm ready to come to you a third time. You, you can also read it, and this is the, the wording is probably a little bit more difficult if you interpret chapter 12 and chapter 13 this way, as, as Paul saying, I was going to come to you. I didn't come to you. You know, remember that the timing between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is not very long. He, he, he writes this letter, 
And then he sends Titus to see how the letter is received. And remember, he's waiting for Titus to come to him, and Titus doesn't come to him. He talks about that in chapter 7. He talks about that in chapter 2. He said, you know, my heart had no rest because I needed to hear from Titus how you had received everything in 1 Corinthians. And then in chapter 7, he talks about how he had rejoiced that they had repented and he'd heard good things from them. So it it kind of, that, that, that second visit is really tough to figure out. Did he actually make a second visit or was he ready and prepared to go But then he didn't want to come to them in sorrow. And so he changed his plans. And he didn't come to them. But now, for the third time, he's ready and he's actually going to do it. Uh, I'll let you you make up up your mind as to to which one that is. Um, And and again, I don't don't think this really changes the overall interpretation. Whether he went three times total, whether he went two times, whatever the case may be. He is telling them now, I'm coming. You know, and listen, I'm so glad that so many of you have repented and changed, but for those of you that haven't, there's going to be a reckoning. And that's what he is describing here in these last couple of verses. Uh, He's mentioning, you know, I'm excited to come to you. This is how I'm coming to you. He tells him, I'm going to come to you as a father that's ready to see his kids. You know, and he mentions here that kids don't save up so that they can spend on their parents. Parents save up so they can spend on their kids. And he essentially, you know, the way that I'm reading this, he says, listen, I've been saving myself so that I can be spent on you. I want to come to you and show you love the way that a father loves a child. Verse 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, even though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. He said, regardless, regardless of how you feel towards me, This is how I feel towards you. I love you, and I'm ready to pour out that love upon you. He asked them a couple of rhetorical questions. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) He says, did I take it? (coughs) Excuse me. He says, did I take advantage of you? He says, did Titus take advantage of you? And again, I think he's, he's bringing to mind, he's bringing to mind this idea that even if you are not viewing me, in the same way that I am viewing you, just, just think for a second about how we have been in our time together. Did I ever take advantage of you? And, and I think some people have suggested that, especially in that collection, that maybe some have used him not coming, or some individuals, uh, some individuals have used this idea that Paul is wanting to take up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, that some individuals are trying to twist this against him. He said, listen, you, you know that's not the case. I'm not coming to you to rob you. I'm not coming to you just to collect a bunch of money uh, for, for the Paul Fund. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate that. He said, I'm not coming to take a bunch of money for the Paul Fund. You, you know how I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you out of love, and I'm coming to collect money for the saints in Jerusalem. He said, we have never taken advantage of you, and we're not going to start now. What, what is maybe the strongest, the strongest part here is this very end, these last couple of verses. When he, when he tells them what his fear is, he said, my fear is that when I come to you, it's not going to be a good visit. And it's not going to be a good visit because I don't love you. It's going to be a good visit. It's not going to be a good visit because you have allowed these individuals to remain in sin. And he said, and I can't abide with that. Uh, verse 20, he says, for I fear lest when I come... I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Remember what he said in chapter 10? He said, listen, I don't want to come to you in boldness, 
but I will if I have to. And he says, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. This is his fear. And again, I think this ties in with what we talked about in our introduction. That Paul said, listen, the reason, that I'm, the reason that I'm coming out so strong on this is not because I feel like I have to defend myself and my own pride. I care about your righteousness. I care about your purity. And he said, listen, I'm going to come to you again. I'm going to come. And when I come, I- I'm afraid that you are going to permit these individuals that are sinning to continue sinning. And I'm, and I'm not going to abide with that. He, he's very, very straightforward about how he's going to approach it. And, and I think it's just, it's, it's an incredible balance that Paul presents here of, of love. I love you. I'm ready to spend and to be spent for you. But I'm not going to put up with sin. I'm not going to put up with any sin. I'm glad that you've repented, but I'm not going to put up with any sin. And especially that line uh, in in verse 20, I fear when I come that I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you not as you wish. Remember, in my mind, that goes back to chapter 10 when he says, I'm going to come to you and I don't want to be bold, but I will. You know, if you guys think that I'm weak in person and only strong in letters, you know, when I come, it's not going to be that way. I'm going to be strong and I'm going to be bold when it comes to sin and when it comes to your purity. So that, that kind of, uh, that, that, that thought is going to lead into chapter 13. Chapter 13 is, is fairly short, um, so we'll, we'll plan to cover that next week. But are there any thoughts or comments? Yeah, Bill's, Bill's got one. Yeah, I was thinking about what he's saying about taking advantage of them. And take a step, take a step back for a second. So the, the church is less than one generation old. And you got this guy going around, and he's got all of the opportunity to take advantage of these people. And, and one of the best ways, to me anyway, one of the best ways to give the, uh, give the church, give Christianity, like, less credibility is mess with people's money. You know, if, if you mess with my money or, uh, or anything like that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you can, or you take advantage of me or, uh, or, or things like that, or you have credibility problems yourself, like that's mentioned in the first part of the book, the church can fall apart. And basically, Paul is walking really, really thin ice, you know, led by the Spirit, of course. But I think it's, he does a really good job, kind of like you talked about the whole day today, about um, making sure he, he's, he's looking after them. Mm-hmm. He, wants, he wants their lives, their souls to be saved, and, and nothing else. If, they, if he had taken anything from them, one penny, they could say, well, you're just here for my money. And he didn't do mm-hmm. it. And... Uh, Pretty sensitive time in the in the church right here, and he, and I think he handled it really well. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good point because he could have he could have taken money from them while he was there, but yet how how would that have looked if he had taken money from them while he was there, and then he comes back to them again and says, "Hey, listen, guys, thanks for giving me all that money. Then I, I need I need to ask some more from you, but don't worry, this one isn't for me. This is for some brethren that you don't know half half a world away in Jerusalem." There's, there's a lot of gray area there. There's a lot of areas for the erosion of trust. And I think what Paul is saying is, listen, there should be zero erosion of trust. You can go back from the very beginning 
And you, and you have seen, you have seen in me and you have seen among yourselves, it has never, ever been about the money. So when I come to you, he said, first of all, I've been telling you about this for a while, you know, but now this is not something that I'm going to benefit from personally. And, and you're right, Bill, that, that's just that, that erosion of trust in a young, fragile church is so, is so important. Any other thoughts? All right. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Plan to read, plan to read chapter 13 next week, and that's what we'll pick up.